time of the week again. It's the Flat Out RC podcast time. It's the podcast dedicated to the art, the sport, the skill of error modeling. My name is Andrew Sill. I am the host of this this program. Thanks for joining me. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast. Every Wednesday, a new podcast is dropped, and we're talking to all sorts of people from around the globe, here in Australia and around the globe. Uh, Anybody that we can get that is interesting, we'll try to get on Flat Out RC Podcast. Well, now we've got a big episode coming up uh, later. We'll have my special guest, Joe Finicchiaro from the VMAA, the MAAA chapter down here in Victoria. Uh, he's a secretary, but also an avid aero modeler. So we'll have a good chat with him. But before we get into our interview, let's take a look at any news that's been happening out there in aero modeling land. Well, we've been light on for news in the hobby, but I'll tell you what, this week we have a big one, and that is some controversial news that's out there around Hobby King, the hobby online retailer that we all know came into the market over 10 years ago now and really shook things up. Now, there's a lot of people sitting in the wings saying, Nah, 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 to Hobby King, but uh, what is the news? Well, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission in the US, has fined Hobby King more than $2.8 million for marketing drone transmitters which used unauthorized radio frequencies and power levels. That's reading, I'm just reading off the uh, the press release that the FCC has put out. So it's over in the US, uh, it was two million eight hundred and sixty one thousand and one hundred twenty eight dollars was the fine now that is a massive fine for a hobby company so basically what they were doing is uh fpv gear uh av transmitters that uh, send uh, video images back to goggles and things like that the radio frequencies that are allowed to be used for for amateur use uh uh, are, are restricted, um, but uh, the FCC's investigation found that 65 models of devices could operate outside those amateur bands, in addition to using designated amateur radio bands, yet the devices were not certified by the commission, so they weren't certified gear as well. But one of the most concerning things for me out of this whole statement media release has been put out is how Hobby King was reluctant to provide information that uh, basically they went quiet. Now, I've heard of other legal cases that have happened against Hobby King, but I can't verify any of them. I've just heard on the grapevine. But what they've basically said that, uh, you know, there were complaints made by somebody made a complaint about their gear not complying. In response to these complaints, the FCC issued a formal citation to warn the company that it must comply with these requirements. Following further complaints, the commission ordered the company to provide information on its marketing of uh, AV transmitters, yet Hobby King provided no further response as required by law. So the commission then proposed a fine in 2018, which has now been adopted. So basically, Hobby King was given the option to uh, respond, but they didn't. Why wouldn't you just respond? Like, why would you just ignore a thing that's going to go away? If a, a, a major 
organization in the US that can find you, ask for information, and you don't give it. Is that arrogance? Is it stupidity? I don't know. It could be a lot of different reasons. I'm not sure as to what their legal advice would tell them to, to be quiet, maybe just cop the fine on the chin, maybe was the attitude. I really don't know. But uh, you know, that $2.8 million fine will definitely impact the Hobby King business in some way. What I've noticed with Hobby King over the years is that it's not the same as what it used to be. The market has declined. Their, their sales can't be anywhere near what they used to be. Um, you know, going back say five, six, seven years ago, their model, their, the range of models, not that great. I've met, I've met one manufacturer that was making models for Hobby King, and uh, you know, it sounded like a weird relationship. Uh, I won't go into the details, but there's something that I probably wouldn't have entered into from a business perspective, but. You know, you've got a business and the Hobby King's banking on the concept of being low price. So a lot of their gear uh, is is cheap. I use some of their stuff like battery connectors and some of the batteries and things like that, which have been been okay. But, um, you know, their, their models that they offer, they, they use multiple different manufacturers in China that might produce certain specific models um you know every time i go to china and say who's making for hobby king uh, everyone always says oh lots of little lots of little manufacturers and so they're really working on the concept of price uh first and then quality i suppose second with a lot of stuff some of their stuff's okay but i've haven't had great success with some of their their model aircraft um over the years but that's just my personal thing you know you may have had a, a different experience but um you know, when it comes to things like servos and radio gear, like I'll go to to a major brand any day and, and pay the extra price for it because I'm just a believer of investing in quality um, rather than quantity. <laughs> I'll I'll buy quality any day. Um, and so, uh, just I'm personally disappointed with Hobby King and their approach to to not responding. Like I just understand again, they may have had legal advice. It's better than the advice I could give them. That said, just be quiet. But uh, $2.8 million fine. Now, let's put that into context. A lot of other hobby companies, if they got slapped with a $2.8 million fine, well, that'd be pack up and uh, go home kind of material that there's no hope in hell that they'd be able to survive having been fined that because the margins in the hobby aren't great. If anybody thinks that these hobby companies make a lot of money, they don't. Hobby King, as a business on paper, was an excellent concept. It was a, It was... An Australian guy started it, um, and his sights were set on the globe. He wasn't really, you know, f- looking at selling into one particular market to survive. So the Australian market, which is very small, but uh, more on a global scale into Europe and the US and whatever, and and they did it very, very successfully. You can't dispute that the Hobby King business was done well. The website was great. Now, when you think about the website, I, I used to show the Hobby King website to people in my marketing you know, activities and say, have a look at what they've done. It basically was run by the customers. They would provide the support. They would provide the reviews and you know the tips and the tricks on what to buy and what to power up the models with and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it, it was a good, good uh, sort of scheme. If you wanted great after-sales service, well, it was going to be impossible to really do that. They've created warehouses around around the world. We've got one here in Australia that does a great job. They, they're, you know, they do a very good job when you place an order. They'll action that order. So the core business is really, really good. I'm just disappointed that they sold gear that was not uh, authorized. I don't know what implications that could have in other markets here in Australia. Um, where we do have regulations around our, what they call the spectrum and the bands that we can use, the output uh, of the devices as well. Um, so, 
for for everyone's sake, I I do hope that Hobby King do survive uh, because the more hobby businesses we have, the more choice we have. Uh, So hopefully they can work through this $2.8 million fine. And to everybody out there, I hope we learn from Hobby King's mistakes. Do not try to sell illegal gear. And the other side of the equation is, is when you buy something, it's also up to you to make sure that you're buying something that is regulated in your country, that radio gear has to be certified to meet certain standards in different countries. Just because you bought a radio from a manufacturer doesn't mean that it has been approved in Australia. You have to have the, the relevant uh, approvals to be able to uh, use that gear. And that's including receivers as well. That A lot of these receivers, the knockoffs that we see, aren't actually uh, approved for use, say, in Australia. So be very, very mindful of that uh, before you buy any gear from anyone. Make sure you're buying legal stuff. So bad news this week for Hobby King, at least. Time for a guest. Enough of my yakking. Uh, This week's guest is Joe Finicaro. Joe Finicaro is... Known as the secretary of the Victorian chapter of the MAAA, uh, has been involved for quite some time, now holds the position as a secretary and does a lot of admin work. I, I don't think we appreciate how much work's happening behind the scenes, especially by the secretaries of our different chapters. But uh, not only is he a hardworking man, he's a great bloke. I've spent a fair bit of time with him at different events Uh enjoying each other's company having a go at each other you know he, he has his his nick on camera i have my nick on camera and we sort of fight for the shot when we're at events and uh, but he's a great bloke and he's a really avid modeler as well he's not just you know into the admin side of things because that's pretty boring after a while but uh he's into building planes he's into flying planes and as you'll hear he's he's still very much in love with the hobby and and uh very much dedicated to us and giving us a great flying experience and and keeping the hobby rolling. So over to our chat with my friend, good bloke, Joe Finicaro. Joe Finicaro, thanks for joining us here on the Flat Out RC podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Joe, you and I, we love seeing each other there at the flying fields. You know, we've known each other for a number of years now and we have a lot of fun. So really glad to have you on this, uh, on the Flat Out RC podcast. First of all, tell us how did your journey in aero modeling start? Uh, many years ago, when I was a young lad of about uh, 14, I just happened to um, uh, go into Caulfield Tech, which was my high school, and on the corner, so heaven forbid, there was the hobby hangar sitting oh. there, and my tram used to stop right outside the hobby hangar every morning and every afternoon. So as a young lad, being interested and in seeing my very first model aircraft at, at a um, in an old movie with Shirley Temple, and I looked at it and said, I want to do that one day. And sure enough, as I got off the tram, there was the hobby hanger, and I was just like a child in a lolly shop. That's right. I didn't know where to look. Good so, old Tony Cincotta out of the hobby hanger. Tony Cincotta and Jim Davey, both of them, those gentlemen taught me how to fly. Jim Davey taught me how to fly power, and Tony taught me how to fly glider. And then I actually worked for the hobby hanger for about three years, uh, as in sales and in the in their warehouse. Um, so I, I gained a lot of knowledge um, from both gentlemen, especially Tony, um, in regard to RC, models, kits, uh, how the uh, system operates in, as in, in those days for supply and demand. 
but it was a fantastic time. And um, uh, I have known Tony until he passed away. Uh, it was only a few years ago. Uh, but um, yeah, it was a, it was great. Um, I learned a lot, um, and I have some very fond memories of the hobby hangar and um, and how it was operated. They were great. That's that was my go-to when I was a kid as well. I bought uh, and a couple of kits from uh, Tony Chincotta. Gee, he could, he could smoke, couldn't he? Oh, he was a bit of a chain smoker. But I remember my first engine that I bought was an Enya two point five, which I bought off Tony for a control line model which eventually became, uh, went into a, a trainer, a small trainer as well. And um, since then, I never looked back. Um, I've been flying model aircraft on and on since I was 14. I'm now 61. But when I was in the military, because I spent a lot of, um, uh, quite a deal of my time in the military, I've actually, I'm a qualified drone operator in the military because of my background in model aircraft. So I can actually fly drones, um, which is again, something that not many people do in those days. I'm talking about military drones. I'm not talking about the Mavericks or anything like that. Mm. So, and type of drones that we use to uh, to be shot down um, for target practice and using those type of drones as well. So I've been exposed to RC probably most of my adult life uh, and and from a young, young age. And um, yeah, it's has some fond memories, some great memories um, along the journey. And I'm still doing it now. Now, let's just uh, slow down because there's a lot of ground to cover here, Joe, because I'm interested, like you said that the guys at Hobby Hangar taught you where, how to fly. Where were you flying? Did you fly at Corfu Racecourse across the road from the, the shop or where was it the, the field that you were flying at? Well, from um, for power, I flew at Corfu's Racecourse. Jim Davey took, uh, took me there many a time to fly a trainer. I can't quite remember what the trainer's name was, but it was a smallish trainer. Um, I think it was built by Fox at that time. So I learned power there, and Tony Shinkata taught me how to fly glider at Ferntree Gully. He used to you take me up to the Ferntree Gully, up to the mountains. There was a, a slope that we used to uh, participate all the time and used to go there and fly off the edge of the slope And um, many years ago. Yeah, now I... Um, yeah, you can actually still fly at Caulfield Racecourse. There's, there is a club there, I believe... You'd there is yeah. the club. The club reformed uh, only recently again, and they are using. Um, when I say reformed, it sort of went quiet, and but now they're back in vogue. And yes, they are using the centre of um, the race course because it is public ground, um, and the club is active. Yeah, well, that's. It's, it's, I think it's one of the only locations in Victoria or in metropolitan Victoria, at least, that the council bylaws allow for model flying to take place in the centre of the race course. Because it is a public park, and I've been there a number of times. It's really it's an electric only club. Uh, you know the whole concept of um, combustion engines is gone from the club there, but it's actually it's not a bad place for flying gliders and things like that as well. You know it's actually quite an interesting place to go. It's not far from where I live, so I've been there a number of times. Now, so after that year of learning how to fly at Caulfield Racecourse, where what were the next steps? You know after the trainer kind of stuff, did you join a club or, or what happened? Yep. Um, uh, we started flying gliders at that time um, at Camp, Camperdown, um, flew in glider competitions with um, Tony Shinkotta, um, flew a lot at um, Coyfield Racecourse uh, with helicopters as well as power and gliders. Um, I didn't get an opportunity in those days to join a club because uh, shortly after um, I joined the military at the age 
age of about 17 and a half. Um, so when I left the hobby hangar and started my military career, but during that time, I um, was always with either Tony or Jim Davey. So we're either flying at the race course or Ferntree Gully. Um, and I don't believe there was a club there at, the, at that particular time, because this is back in 1972, um, 73. So, um, yeah, it's, and from that, I went on from, from there to fly in the military for drones shortly after that. So, and still hold my rating in that case. Really? Tell us a bit about those drones. How were they powered? The powered, uh, one of the drones had a 40 horsepower pusher propeller um, on the back, shaped like a delta. Uh, that was used um, uh, for target tracking for, so for our missile systems. Um, so the radar would pick up the drone because it was covered in uh, reflective material. The other type of drones were basically um, either low wing or high wing trainers. Um, with 60 size motors in those days a 60 size aircraft was probably a big aircraft and was used to uh, pass machine gun positions and would have a firing range and would have a variety of different type of weapons um, of different size of caliber and the intent was to uh, shoot at the drone with special sights that allow you for lead off because if you know anything about shooting a moving target you always try to aim in front of it so the thing moves into the range of the projectile. Um, so it was training for the soldiers to actually use the weapons correctly. And, of course, for me, it was good fun to actually fly the aircraft around and see where they can hit it. And while on that exercise, I had a brand-new aircraft that lasted one pass with one bullet straight through the receiver where another aircraft had 19 bullet holes um, through the aircraft and still flew. Uh, the aircraft were made out of material of wood and the wings were foam. So if a bullet hit the foam wing, it'd go straight through it and the foam would close up. So it was quite quite um, novel. Um, the guys had a lot of fun. And and at the same time, we did some training. So it was, yeah, it was good all around. Who, who had to build those uh, planes? I built them. Um, they were, in those days, they were half built. We completed them, put them together. Um, there was another person who used to help as well. Uh, we'd take 10 drones with us or 10 target drones with us um, for an exercise uh, for a week. How long that would last entirely depends how lucky or unlucky you were, depending on which end of the spectrum you're on. But, um, uh, yeah, we did that a few times um, uh, um, in a place called um, uh, Port Augusta and an exercise area called Coltana. Uh, which is a training ex uh, area in South Australia, um, where we did a lot of training there. Um, and then up in Sydney uh, and some areas up there where we got trained to fly another type of drone, another Delta that was designed for infrared tracking. So I spent some time up there. And I was actually uh, probably one of the few people that were qualified by Hawkins de Havilland to be a um, pilot drone operator. So I've got... I suppose that distinction of having that certificate signed off by the company. Excellent. Well, whilst you were, how long were you in the army for? Uh, nearly twenty-five years in total. I retired in two thousand, and I joined in nineteen seventy-six. Okay. So, and during that time, whilst you in the army, were you flying, um, you know, recreationally as well, or not? Um, not so much recreation recreationally because, um, obviously, became. Uh, more like work. So I did a lot of flying within the military and used that 
it's put like recreation. And I didn't even join um, a club during that time because I didn't have to in the sense that I always had a flying field to fly at the military sites um, because of runways um, and airports uh, near the military bases and et cetera. Um, but still under strict scrutiny and obviously guidelines. But yeah, there was um, a lot of fun. It was only after when I retired from the military, I joined my first club um, after the military, which was Greensboro Model Aircraft Club. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I was there um, for most of the time and joined then joined the VMAA in, in 2006 and been associated with the VMAA ever since. But now I've obviously moved up to the Bacchus Marsh Club, which is now the Mount Wallace Model Aircraft Club or Association, and um, continues on. Okay, now, VMAA. So people would know you as being the secretary of the uh, VMAA, the Victorian chapter of the... Uh, MAAA down here. Uh, so yes. I just want to talk a bit about that role. Now, you said in 2006 you joined the VMAA. What led you to want to get on the committee for VMAA? It was strange. I was um, running the um, uh, Monash print services at the time, uh, looking after the print um, print area, which covered quite a large area, and I was uh, managing that particular facility. Um, one of the uh, modelers uh, was also the editor for the VMAA. And I used to print the newsletter uh, for the VMAA during that time. Shortly after that, that particular editor, which was David Walsh, who was a member of the Packenham Club, stepped down and he asked me whether I was interested in taking it over and becoming the editor of the VMAA. And that's how my journey started there. In 2006, I became the editor and took on that role. And since then... You're editing the news newsletter you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. I edited and produced the newsletter for quite a number of years, and I'm actually still doing it now. Um, so from 2006 until now, I've been doing the newsletter in one form or another. Gee, that's a lot of work. It is. I, I do tend to enjoy because I like reporting on model aircraft activities and events and promoting our fantastic sport because it's a sport for everyone. Uh, it's not gender specific um, and it can be very enjoyable. And the best thing of it, you meet a lot of people and create a lot of friends. And the best part is to go out, have a chat and have a fly. Nothing better. That's true. Now, uh, your role now is as secretary. Um, yep. One thing I find is that a lot of people... Uh, sit in the, uh, the the grandstand assuming they know what you guys do at the VMAA, you know, behind closed doors and that kind of stuff. And you get a lot of the peanuts that say, oh, it's a, little, it's a boys club and all that kind of stuff, well, which I don't believe yep. any of that. But yep. I want to give people sort of an understanding as to what your role entails as secretary of the VMAA. So um, before we went on air, you, you started rattling off a whole bunch of stuff that you've been working on. Just share with us, you know, what is your function as secretary of the VMAA? Well, as a secretary, like most other secretaries in any club or association, you are the central administrator for the organisation. As the VMAA secretary, I'm exactly that. I'm a central focal point for the administration in and out of the uh, VMAA, correspondence, um, liaison, the, discussing um, various matters. As the secretary and as part of the VMAA committee, we are a service organisation and we try and service 
all of our member clubs within the VMAA Association. And we have, I believe at the moment, 75 clubs that we deal with in one way or another in various sizes. So my function is, is to assist clubs, for example, display days, assist clubs with loans and grants, to assist clubs if there is an issue with a council or councils or other organisations that could either infringe or may create a problem. Provide guidance to those clubs. Um, give them a mouthpiece to the MAAA if there's a concern. Um, ensure the MOPs, a manual of procedures, is a guideline for all of us to follow. And that's why we have insurance and that's why we have an organisation as national and state bodies is so that we can describe action and assist all the clubs, whether and SIG groups, that is, as well. So we can all enjoy our sport of model aircraft aviation and keep on providing a, a, a conduit between our sport and outside organisations. And that includes organisations like CASA. Um, CASA deals, as we know, with the airspace and People don't realise that as soon as you leave the ground, you belong to CASA airspace. So our function is to ensure that the CASA regulations 101, the CASA area approvals that clubs would like to have for airspace is adhered to with the rules and regulations they provide. So we all can fly safe. We follow the framework and the structure um, that is laid down in front of us. And of course, process those applications and speak to the MAAA in CASA. So the club or SIG, especially the clubs, can actually gain that approval and have an area on a map that belongs to them as part of their airspace. Yeah. Now, there's so many vital aspects to that that, that allow our hobby to, to function. I think a lot of us take it for granted how much has to happen behind the scenes. And, and I, you know, I've heard the... The people at clubs say, oh, what does the MAAA do for us? What does the VMAA do for us? But I think it's a two-way street. I personally think that uh, the VMAA provides clubs with a lot of support, but I, I have a feeling that the clubs don't reach out for support. They expect you to automatically give them some support. What are some of the examples of how the VMAA can support a club on a you know a year-by-year -year basis uh, kind of thing? Well, we support the clubs, um, as you know, each year. Uh, MAAA provide an opportunity for grants and applications um, uh, for whatever worthwhile aspect. VMAA have the same um, sort of program. We assist the club by ensuring their applications um, meet the criteria, um, providing uh, guidance and feedback so the application is a clean and will be accepted instead of going back and forth. That goes the same for CASA applications for clubs. Out of the 74 clubs, there would be at least 40 plus that would have an area approval and it's still ongoing. And that's how much work. There's a lot of work to do for each area application because you're talking about risk assessment, um, authority, um, CASA requirements, um, uh, checking um, with ASS, which is um, Air Services Australia, um, because two organisations, CASA and uh, SOS Australia, are actually separate. AS, SOS Australia looks after the towers and CASA looks after the airspace. So you're dealing with two agencies, clubs that are within three nautical miles of, um, for example, Tunnel Marine. We have the Keylor Club. Um, any airfield um, that is registered as near a club, there are certain criteria 
that needs to be met. So risk assessments become critical. Um, uh, obvious adherence to the procedures and process becomes critical. And CASA needs to know that we, as club members of a club, are flying within the framework by the MOPs, flying safe and following the rules that we lay down, as in MAAA, so everyone can fly safe, enjoy the sport, and also compete at various levels and go from there. So it's a wide spectrum, and the clubs could come to the VMAA and ask us wherever they need to, and we will either find out what needs to be um, discussed and discuss it with the club, or, and my function as the secretary, would go up the chain to the MAAA secretary to get more information to be more specific and then feed back down to the club. So it's always an open communication both ways, and one that's very important, and it's one that I've worked very hard with the, with the rest of the committee to ensure um, that communication stays wide open. Yeah. Now, it, recently down here in Victoria, we've been in metropolitan Victoria, that is, we've been subjected to a, uh, a six-week lockdown. And there's been a lot of banter, especially on uh, social forums and things like that, around um, the ability to go flying and uh, you know whether we're allowed to do it or not. And I know that you're behind a lot of the VMAA email communications. What is the official stance? Well, so let me take one backward, one step backwards. Before you send an email out, how do you know what to say? Is there some consultation with the committee? How are decisions made like that? Okay. It's a two-step process. First of all, yes, I speak to um, other committee members, especially the president, regarding to our next communique um, to the club. Either can be either to the secretaries or, and in this particular case, it's association-wide, so it's every member. The next thing we do is um, look at the official Victorian Health Minister's directive uh, that dictates what can and can't be done, how it should be done, what are the restrictions and the rules associated to the directive? So at the moment, to answer your specific question about can clubs fly within the metropolitan area, the answer to that is they could if they followed all the guidelines within the directive. It is very specific in the sense of social distancing, how many people, like I think is two, um, and the intent that no equipment, no clubhouse, no kit, canteen, and so on. At the end of the day, what the directive intends is for people, unless there is a specific need to leave the house, is to remain isolated as much as possible. I understand that uh, flying at the field is relaxing. Is it a necessity? Probably not, uh, but is enjoyable. Yes, it is. But for the purpose of fighting the COVID-19 virus, our recommendation as the VMAA would suggest that you need to follow the directive, uh, use the directive as a management tool for the club committees, and really stay home. That's the only way we can fight it because one of the four reasons to leave a house is exercise. Model airflow is not exercising and maybe recreational. Recreational, if you look at the directive, talks about reading a book in a park or going to a park. It doesn't say about not going to a field, but it doesn't say you have to either. So really to try and fight this and, and win, um, 
like I said, we need to really stay home and isolate. It's not the function of flying that is the problem. It's the function of leaving the home and going to the field and coming back. Where you stop, where you fill fuel up. Do you buy something from a shop? Have you picked up something while you're going to the field? So you need to consider all those points to make a valid judgment. I agree. Now, I, I, I agree. I think that at the moment, uh, with the way things are going here in Victoria, I don't think any of us should be making model flying a priority for all the reasons that you've stated. But I want to clarify a couple of points, though. Yep. The A lot of people look to the VMAA for their direction. And I yep. personally... I appreciate what the what the VMAA says, but I'm also smart enough to know that the well, let's pick a club. Let's just say Greensboro. Not that I've got anything against Greensboro. Just hypothetically speaking, we've got the Greensboro club. The VMAA doesn't own the Greensboro club, right? They have no shares in the Greensboro club. They have no ability to shut a club down. Is that correct? Correct. That is correct. Yeah. So, and this is what I say to people: is when and and your emails are worded really well. So. Uh, in the first email that that the VMAA sent out that you, that you sent out, you your direction was that clubs should close, not must close. Must close means that oh we you have to close now, but you can't you don't have that power. So of all those people out there on Facebook especially that think that the MAAA and the VMAA are going to are shutting clubs down, it's a load of rubbish, isn't it? Correct. Can't happen. The VMAA, the VMAA does not have the authority to shut clubs down. What the VMAA would do is guide clubs to the directive that is the legal document that governs all of us and basically request the clubs to follow suit and understand and take a an approach based on fact and then make a valid decision to do the right thing for the community. We are community-based organisation as we all are We've, we are amongst the community. Um, we share our facilities with club members, but we invite um, uh, visitors to our clubs. So we do have a social responsibility and something that we need to understand that for a short period of time, yes, it does hurt that we can't do what we love, but that short period of time at the other end will hopefully ensure that we'll live a long and prosper life and enjoy a lot of model airplane flying. That's true. Now, but the question is, why does the VMAA put out such uh, communications? We provide as much information and communicate so all club members and association members are aware of the current state of play, direct them to where the directives um, will, uh, are located. And one of the emails I'll be sending tonight is that to give them the latest information, the latest directive, so they can see it's not the VMAA making the rules up it is the victorian state health minister that has provided the guidance yeah and i agree and and the way that i see it is that the vmaa are just providing information for people to make their own decisions for the club members and what what has been really disappointing joe not from not vmaa you've done the right thing is club leaders committees and whatever seem to be really, really slow communicating to their members. I, uh, Like you, we know a lot of people in the hobby from various different clubs. I'm a member of a couple of clubs myself. And I'm not seeing anything. 
I'm not seeing anything coming out um, uh, about, oh, sorry, the club that I used to be a member of did an excellent job. Great guy running the show who went out on, on the first day and said, we're shutting the field, right? And he gave good explanations as to why. So they acted really quickly. But I'm just really disappointed that some of these other clubs are leaving their members in limbo, that if they just went out there and sent an email out, which is really easy to do nowadays, and just said, members, we're shutting the field for these reasons, we'll see you in six weeks, I think everybody can 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 move along because it's just so much wasted energy on discussing whether we can go flying or not. And people saying, well, you know, why are you allowed to go and play golf and not go and fly a model airplane? Well, you can go and fly a model airplane. You can go and play tennis. You can go and kick a football at the park if you want. But there are guidelines, as you said, that you must abide by. And it's up to your clubs to determine whether they want to keep the front gate open or not. So people, just relax. And you know what? Just stay home for six weeks. It's winter down here in Victoria. It's not that great to go flying at the moment. So stay home and build a plane or something. But well, it- can I can I add one more to that? I think to answer your other question in regard to why clubs don't do it, I think clubs rely on the VMWA to provide that direction. My emails to go out to go out to every member of the association in Victoria, and I think they use that as the pretense to say, well. This is what has been said. However, after saying that, we always ensure and highlight it is up to the club committee of management to provide the final decision on which way the club will go. We can provide the impotence and say, yep, this is what is happening, but club committees need to take that responsibility because that's what they're there for. And it is difficult to say to a club member, sorry, club is closed, and even though the directive says we can do something, it's better off to keep the club closed. Now, that's a decision. It's a hard decision. But there is clubs out there that have made that decision and made it very clear to their members the field is closed until further notice. And I applaud those clubs for taking that stance. But there's other clubs that use the other way where we can manage the directive, we can manage the requirements and the rules, and believe they can achieve the same thing. So those co- uh, committee of management, well done. Good luck to yourself. And if you can do that, fantastic. But do you know what I also say though, Joe, is that yep. your club might open and your golf club might be open. That doesn't mean yep. you need to turn up. So that's, there's going to be people that, that there are going to be people that just live for flying and that's all they want to do and they've got nothing else to do except go for flying. So they're they're upset that they can't go that they can't go and fly. But, you know, okay, so your, your, your club, and I've heard of some clubs that are opening um, with restrictions. Um, but uh, I just think we need to just, like, if we're in stage three lockdown, if we get to stage four, it's going to be miserable for everybody. So Fully agree. I'd rather just everybody stay home. So that's, and okay, we're talking about our opinions here, Joe, aren't we? This is our opinions. If you've got a different opinion, knock yourself out. But Joe and I have got a similar opinion. He's a good bloke. I'm a good bloke. We're allowed to have our opinions. And so our opinion is for six weeks, Victorians or metropolitan Melbourneites, stay home. And flying clubs, committees, we encourage you to follow our opinion. (laughs) No, no, look, I encourage the clubs to take a proactive stance based on their circumstance, where they are, et cetera. And if they can manage the restrictions, and I do mean manage the restrictions, then they should be allowed to, um, let's say, flex their authority. All we are saying is, here's the directive. This is what we believe. 
And a recommendation is, why don't we stay home for just for six weeks, go and build a model and enjoy. And then at the end of the six weeks, go and fly with any luck. But as I said, the VMAA can't, hasn't, and does not have the authority, but we do make the recommendations and provide guidance based on the directives from the Victorian state government. Excellent. Well, we've said everything we need to say on that matter, and we're going to move on now because we're going to get yep. just going to consume too much of our thinking. We need to move on. So, uh, you mentioned the, the the Mount Wallace field, and um, I, I'm a big believer that the VMAA in the whole MAAA sort of community has led the way in relation to purchasing fields that will shore up our future. That we know that. You know, in in built up CBD areas around the country, uh, it's going to become harder and harder for many clubs to stay viable. And the yes. VMAA have now, I'd say they've gone north, south, east, and west. That they have now secured uh, land uh, and land that we know is not going to be built out anytime soon. Uh, that will enable us to fly. And the most recent one being uh, the field out at Mount Wallace. And I have visited there. And it's it's a phenomenal place, and it's just going to get better and better as the facilities, you know, start coming online. Tell me a bit yes. about that history of that that uh, development of that uh, new field. It started off um, when I first joined. At that time, was the Bacchus Marsh Club, and um, one of my one of the meetings that I attended, I put my hand up and suggested, "Why don't we look for a field?" Um, uh, and purchase the field using the facilities of uh, purchase the state field. Reason being is, like many other clubs, the Bacchus Marsh Club is on leased land and on a 30-day notice to move out if required. Not really a healthy place to be and very limited what you can do to um, obviously spend money, uh, create facilities for the long-term future. The Mount Wallace field was eventually found after three years of searching and, and I take credit to the club for doing that to find the field. We found Mount Wallace, 80 acres of pristine farming land was up for sale. And back in 2016, on the 27th of October, that piece of land became the MAAA. To get to that point- VMAA uh, MAAA. MAAA. Okay. MAAA purchased the land on behalf of um, the association uh, for the purpose of being a state field. Um, Bacchus Marsh Club then put their hand up to be hit, be the host and was accepted. Um, and that's how the field was formed and established. Lead up to that, there was a lot of negotiation, paperwork and um, discussion of funding. And at the end of the day, it was achieved. The VMAA then leases a partial 20 acres of that 80 um, from the MAAA, which then on leases it onto the host club. What happens to the other 60 acres um, is then leased to a farmer. So the land becomes adjusted. So obviously some funding can be gained um, by the MAAA and the property gets looked after. So the host club has the responsibility of those 20 acres, the responsibility of developing it, responsibility to have it in a position so um, all modelers can uh, go up to the M. Um, to Mount Wallace and fly, SIG groups, and that started to happen. So since 2016 until now, 
um, there's a 300 meter runway that's been laser leveled, the pit area car parking. There is um, a dam on the other side of the main runway that can be used for boating and for float flying. Uh, there's water uh, with a bore, which produces plenty of water. They have mains power. Now, all that has taken time um, to achieve and the club slowly but surely is developing the facilities to make the state field what is expected. Eventually, toilet, showers, clubhouse, um, storage sheds will be built. But that takes time and funding. And the old saying, if you build it, they will come. And a lot of people have shown interest to join the club uh, or visit the state field because it's open to all members um, of the MAAA, not just the VMAA, all MAAA members. Um, and so the field has been developed and it still is being developed. And I don't think it ever stops being developed. It just continues on as things get better and better. Yeah, and uh, just, just to clarify something um, for my own interest, really. So you're saying that anybody can go and join there, go and fly there. Is it, yep. you know, normally when you go to a, a flying club, you can visit four times a year, sign the visitor's book, all that kind of stuff. Does that apply to a state field or not? It's just if you're if no. you're an MAAA member, you can turn up to a, a field, a state field. That's correct. You do not have to be a member to go to a MAAA-owned field. Now, in Victoria, we have four state fields. Two are owned by the VMAA. We actually paid off the land to the MAAA, so we now own, where two others are still owned by the MAAA. But to answer your question clearly, any member can go to any one of those fields at any time, sign the visitor's book and go and have a fly. The host club, though, does have the right to say, well, you keep on coming to the field, why don't you join us? But you don't have to join the club to go and fly to state field. That's as simple as that. Yeah, okay. Well, the, I, I, what I love about the Mount Wallace field is uh, the layout of it, I think, is it lends itself to um, you know a, a good place to fly, the pit area. I just love the pit area that it's a short drive in and it's it's you can back your car up, pull your plane out, and then it's a, a shortish walk, you know, within safety reasons, of course, margins. But uh, everything's sort of nice and easy to get to kind of thing. What's the state of your strip at the moment? Because last time I went there, it was still sort of uh, the grass was still growing. How's your grass looking at the moment? Well, um, first part is to your question. Yeah, the field was laid out for that particular purpose for ease of access to get to the pit area and to the main runway. Uh, and that was deliberate, which I think worked out very well. Yeah. The second part to your question is how is the runway? The runway is um, 300 metres or 200 metres completely flat, 300 metres totally long. The grass um, at the moment is patchy because it needs to be reseeded because it's, remember, this was fresh dirt and it needs to be rolled. The yeah. club at the moment was in the process of doing that, but, of course, COVID-19 has stopped a number of things happening. Some of our members are in the lockdown suburbs, which they mean they can't attend. And, and of course, we're trying to try and have an AGM and trying to maintain and develop a very large bit of um, block of land. However, um, I've flown off that uh, runway only a, a week, two weeks ago. I had no problems with, uh, with aircraft. Other people were flying. Um, but a, a good roller, and this is something else, the host club needs to get equipment. And unfortunately, equipment doesn't grow on trees. It costs money. 
and we still need to have a storage shed. So the club is trying to manage all of that and try and develop the runway because all club members realise that the main runway is the critical factor to any club. With no runway, you have no club. So the main runway is the priority. So our efforts, most of our efforts, go into that runway with the intent that one day it would look like a bowling green. Flat, green, short, fly any aircraft, and we have flown jets, prop, electric from that field. However, it needs to have be worked on. And there's no illusions that what work needs to be done. It's a matter of time and effort and money. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, oh, like you've been, you've been, have you been down to sail to the sail club? Uh, I have been. It was quite a while ago, but I have been down to the sail club. Yes, the sail club has the best grass strip you've ever seen. But what people and, and not not just the, the the strip, but the pit area as well. Their grass is is bowling green kind of stuff. And I've mentioned a lot yes. of flat out RC videos and lying on the grass and that kind of thing. But the amount of effort that they go yes. to to have that is massive. And I think the, the the thing that they've got there is got some really willing helpers that, you know, it's part of their hobbies maintaining the grass and they do an excellent job. So, yeah, as you said, and, you know, it, it's I, I know that it's hard for a lot of members to get involved and it's always ends up being the same group of people, you know. For example, in my personal position, it's very hard for me to go and get involved in maintenance at a field because I have to make that decision, do I spend time with my family on the weekend or do I go and cut grass? And yes. and all the other bits and bobs because I've got a young family and work and all that kind of stuff. But I can't wait till I'm older to cut the grass. I'm really looking forward to doing that. Doing that. <laughs> so my time will come. It's just not now. But there are some great people that are out there making that effort and we should, uh, we should thank them all for that. Okay, now... I want to I want to get into the some planes. Let's get back to some planes now. Um, what's currently sitting in your hangar? At the moment, I I am building a hundred inch ugly stick with for a twin sixty cc uh, DLE. Um, this will be um, it was a laser cut kit from Laser Cut Australia. Um, I sort of give them a go to see what the cutting was like, and so far I think it's been quite good. So I've got that on the board. Uh, being put together slowly. Um, I'm also um, repairing my quarter scale cub. Um, I just almost finished. I just had to replace the uh, windscreen and do some work on the front of the of the aircraft. Um, and um, I'm just redoing my 56cc Sabash. The cub and the Sabash are both for scale flying um, for competition, uh, which I enjoy. But I'm also using the Sabash to start flying iMac, uh, which I, I enjoy as well. And if all goes well, I do have a 35% um, a cap, which for 111 DLE, which I have um, to put together for the purpose of flying iMac, but we'll see what happens. I'll tell you what, when I was growing up back in the 80s and stuff, mm-hmm. well, some people say I haven't grown up, but anyway, back in the 80s, <laughs> ca- caps were really popular and they looked great. And there's just, they've just gone out of vogue, really. We've got extras and yaks and edges and all that kind of stuff everywhere. But I'd love to see a cap in the air. Yeah, look, um, I got it for that particular reason because it was a little bit different. It's not your edge or your extra and et cetera. Um, but, yeah, I and it's, it is a big aircraft. Um, it's a 106, 110-inch wingspan, so it's, it is a big aircraft. Um, so I'm looking forward to putting that together. Is it an ARF, or, ARF or kit? It's 
ARF in the sense that the body, a body in that, I've just got to obviously finish it off like we normally do with ARFs. Um, the body is a very, is very light, made that way. Um, do I need to do some strengthening work? Unfortunately, probably. Um, aircraft like that, the ARFs, normally the undercarriage is probably the weakest part of the aircraft. So I'll do some strengthening work there and just do a couple of tweaks here and there. But I'm looking forward to flying it because the Sabash, being a 56DC, is fantastic. Flies well, flies true, um, plenty of power. It's not too heavy. Um, and I get quite a good enjoyment out of it because I, what I want it to do, it does. I point it and it goes there and you have to fly it. It's not just punching holes in the sky. You actually are flying the aircraft, which to me is it's all about what you do, is flying the model aircraft. That's true. What mode are you thinking you're going to run that cap? What mode? What do you mean? As mo in motor. What, what motor? Motor. In the, the cap, I've got, as I said, a 111 DLE CC motor. Okay. Um, brand, brand spanking new. Um, I was looking at also DA, but DA is a little bit expensive for me at the moment, but I'll go with the DLE and see how I go with that. Well, DLEs are pretty good. The, the, the damn exchange rates, it's making all these DAs and... A lot of the motors are more expensive at the moment. It's not. A, it's actually not a great time to be buying kits because mm. the, the exchange rate's terrible. But hey, we can't do anything about it. So if you need to need to buy something, where well, you got to buy something. But uh, but no, that cap. Oh, oh, I'd love to see that cap fly because, as I said, you rarely see them. Uh, but they're a beautiful looking plane, and love to see yeah. them in the air. Well, when the when the time comes, I'll I'll make sure I invite you for the uh, test flight and see what you think. Oh yeah, I'll, you can take some photos. Well, I'll bring photos. yeah, I'll, I'll take some photos. So, because see, Joe and I got this thing. We see each other at events, and he's got his Nick on camera, and I got my Nick on camera, and and then we just have a bit of a uh, bit of a muck around, having a go at each other, which is part of the fun as well. But um, iMac, you mentioned iMac, and I had uh, Michael Andrusic from the uh, Scale yes. Arrows on recently. Gee, yes. it's, it's found it's it's really got a big resurgence going on in Victoria at the moment. It's just, the buzz around is just phenomenal. Well, funny you should say that because I did listen to your podcast with Michael. Michael's a good friend um, and obviously the president of the IMAC Association in Australia. But um, yeah, it was fantastic uh, to hear him. And, yes, very keen um, to fly competition. I am still have not flown properly in a competition for one reason or another, but he's aware that I'm, I've been threatening to come out there with the model, which I'm going to very hmm. shortly when when, when we this COVID-19 lockdown is, is closed. But yes, I think the attitude, um, the uh, approach, um, the buzz of the group, um, they're very keen, uh, they're helpful, and they enjoy what they do. Yeah. And to me, if you enjoy what you do, that just makes it that little bit worthwhile just to make the effort to go there and have a fly because winning and losing don't get me wrong i'm very competitive love to win but you know what at the end of the day i've gone out flying with a group of people doing the same thing like-minded people and enjoying the day and yeah it's a bit disappointing when you don't win but hey look what we're doing i think it's fantastic yeah i think look it's one of those things that uh just participating is fun and and exactly, even exactly. a lot of when you think about it, the majority of IMAC uh, competition and the same with scale is is not at the field on the day of the competition. It's happening for the months prior to a competition where you're practicing the sequences or you're in a scale context. You're working on your plane and you're you're practicing your flying and all that kind of stuff. And that's it's not just turning up for that weekend of IMAC. It's it's everything that goes with it. And 
why is it that all these iMac guys can land a plane like nobody else? They're spot on. Same with the Patton guys as well. And so that, to me, I, I, I'm a big fan of flying. Like, if, if I had to pick between building and flying, I'd take flying at this stage in my life any day. And I was talking to some friends about it the other day, saying how my headspace is literally just in the flying space and getting better, and especially with aerobatics. And, you know, I'll go and fly some IMAX sequences just to improve my skills and give me a purpose to practice for. I don't know whether I've got the time to compete to turn up to the event. But I'm um, more than happy to go and muck around and fly a few sequences. Actually, I was talking to one of uh, the guys that jump on the sim with Brad Worm, the Wormster from uh, Echuca, young young 15-year-old, and he's getting involved in yes. IMAC. And I said to him, Brad, yes. I've got to come up to Echuca, which is a state field, and and we're just the two of us on a Saturday to slap out IMAC flights and critique each other just to for the sake of improving our, our skills. And you know what's really interesting? He said to me last night, actually, we were on the sim, he said – often on a Saturday, say, down in Echuca, there's not a lot of people, club members flying. And he really misses that. He wants other people at the club, where a lot of us think it'd be great to have the place to yourself. He's like, I want other people here, especially other people that fly aerobatics that can critique and can sort of mentor me a bit bit, a bit, uh, bit more. And so I said, well, I'll come up and we'll, we'll, we'll pick on each other and see, you know, who can fly. Well, well, the thing is, there's two things. One, someone said to me many years ago, you want to get good at something, Burn lots of fuel and get out there. That's point yeah. one. Point two, never be afraid of a critique if someone's offering a good critique because then you may, if you listen carefully, you might have a couple of good points that will help you. So the IMAC or the end of the competition, even scale, when you go and fly in comp, it's really the end, end result of your training because you've trained all the way up and what you're doing is put it on show what you have trained. And if you, then the landings is what you said uh, and the landings are spot on, yes, because they've done it 50,000 times prior. And what they're doing is is the end result of that training. Exactly. This is the thing. It was, and I've said this numerous times in this podcast, that if you go back and listen to some of the podcasts that I did with uh, Ali Machinchi and Eddie Edwards and Peter Goldsmith and some of these guys that you know uh, became quite accomplished pilots, the amount of yes. flights they did. And it was, I'd go to China and we'd judge – these aerobatic comps with my friend Ido Segev and we had, you know, guns like Jay's Ducey there and all that. And and we'd always get asked by the competitors, you know, things like, what simulator should I be using? And they'd go, anyone. You know, they were trying to find that one, like, key that would unlock their greatness. And there is no key. It was just stick time. Just keep on yes. going and practicing. You know, like you said, yes. you want to get good at landings, do a lot of takeoff and landings. And that's exactly. that's the advantage of, you know, the competition side. Now, a lot of people will critique the MAAA around their stance around supporting competition, but competition um, gives people something to strive for in their flying and raises the level of the flying standard. Now, what's wrong with that? What is wrong with all of us aspiring to be reasonable, safe pilots. I'm not saying we'll have to be guns and try to win competitions, but yeah, the general level of flying, wouldn't it be good if that we all aspire to be okay? Like be proud to say our level of flying here in Australia is pretty damn good, right? And so yeah. and that comes, it's like Formula One. Formula One cars are built and the whole premise of Formula One and the car racing is that, and you know, Formula One is the pinnacle of technology and that, feeds down into the cars that we see. It's the platform for people to go crazy and see what they can do to make a car perform better. 
And it's yep. no different with the competition. So uh, for all those that think the competition ruins the hobby, it's a lot of rubbish. It actually improves the hobby. And if you want to get good, like Joe said, just keep on practicing. Now, Yeah, fully agree. Uh, uh, you've, you've been around the scene for a while and you're still playing a really critical part in uh, keeping everything rolling, especially down here in Victoria. What would you like to see happen in the hobby in the next 10 years? I would like to see the, the hobby grow a bit more um, with new members um, by providing those facilities um, that we all aspire to have um, because I've been told that model aircraft flying in the clubs, like I mentioned, it probably is for your mental health, um, get together and skills. I like to see the, um, the MAAA and VMAA become uh, closer and I suppose more transparent in the sense of how we promote the sport and how we advertise the sport to the population. I don't think we do enough of that. I think things are changing in the winds. It's, it takes time for the big rules to turn, but it will happen. Um, I think the end state at the long term would be that um, there will be a national body similar to what the American body is, a, a, a national body uh, with it maybe a head of each state um, and state organisations may uh, disappear um, for the right reasons to have um, a bigger, um, more input and a more powerful voice to go up to CASA and our politicians. But that's all in the making and that's all happening. Um, uh, and I think the management um, of the sport is in good hands. The reason why we got state fields is what you said before is to um, protect the sport for the long term, making sure that club members um, have access to those fields and be able to fly if their local field is closed. And that's happened before where a club, a club has to close. However, a state field is always open to them to use. So I think that's important. We do have four in Victoria, and I like to think we can get maybe a couple more um, in the wider areas, whether it's west or south or east, but I think we need to get some more for the sole purpose to protect our sport and to grow it. Um, the thing we have now is that a lot of the young people have a lot of diversions and different things they can do. Uh, but uh, I think uh, as technology improves, especially in drones um, and our computer radios and what we can do with them, you may see a change, but it takes time. Yeah, it does. That's just that's a, that's a that's a good summary. So, and you know what? That's what I love to see from people that work on committees: that ability to have that vision to say, "This is what we're working towards." And that's and I've been pushing that, you know, through my own communication channels. That all those clubs out there with committees don't just blatantly vote for someone. Ask them what's their vision for the club, for the hobby, and you've been able to articulate that. So you're a legend, Joe. Now, <laughs> a final final question. Yes. I ask everybody, what has been your favourite model uh, to date? And I hope you don't say it's a drone that you were flying at the uh, for the Army. No. My favourite aircraft that I have is a BAE Hawk. Um, it's a jet, which I haven't put together yet. Um, it's a one-fifth scale Hawk, and that's my favourite aircraft in, um, in real life and as a model. Reason being because I've worked this particular aircraft um, in my military time, um, as well as flown it in, obviously, model aircraft. So looking forward to putting that together. 
and hopefully flying at a field somewhere, um, flying jets. Well, I'll be joining you then. We can hang out, fly <laughs> jets together. I'll bring my jet, you bring your jet. Match made yep. in heaven. Well done. Well, Joe, you're an absolute legend, and we really appreciate all the effort that you're making. You do, you know, I know Joe and how much he puts into the VMAA, and, you know, of course, we've got the people, the peanut gallery, as I call them, sitting on the wings who are always going to knock anything that anybody on a committee is going to do. But you're not going to. I'm not going to knock you because I know how hard you work and, and the effort that you put in. So, from me to you, thank you very much, Joe Finchiaro. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's appreciated. I do what I do because I love the sport, and I believe I'm and I hope I'm providing some sort of service to the many clubs because it's the clubs and the people that make who we are. And without them, the VM Day doesn't exist. So, thank you very much. Excellent. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. There you have it. Big chat with Joe Finnecaro. Really appreciate him coming on board and having a chat with me. And I hope you learned something a bit about Joe, the VMAA, his ideas and opinions on where things are going. So I really love that. When I have a guest that states an opinion, I'm sick of people just being politically correct. I like to hear what people's opinions are on different matters. So a uh, big thank you to Joe for joining me. Now, uh, I want to have a bit of chat about 3D printers and their role in aero modeling. Because in the past week, I've had sort of some friends talk about 3D printers and buy some and whatever. And I keep on the first question I ask is, well, what are they using them for? What are you going to print? Now, uh, 3D printers are amazing things when you think about it you get this computer file and the next minute you're printing it in 3d out of various different types of plastics and polymers and whatever and i i i think that what we see 3d printers being used in aero modeling is for a number of different things one scale aero modelers are building things like guns and uh, cockpit details and all that kind of stuff which can look awesome often they're you know print them in basic plastic and then painting them and making them look pretty special uh and so that's that's one great use. You know, people are are making holders for receivers and satellite receivers and things like that. Gimbal guards. A lot of it's just mucking around. But uh, one of the most recent movements I've seen is three D printed aircraft. Now, one of my friends, Cosmo, Cosmo, who designed the Flat Out RC magazine, great bloke, uh, loves the hobby. He's got a three D printer and he he loves printing all sorts of things for his daughter and for himself and whatever, just for fun. But he's printed a, 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 a glider. It's actually a copy of my Dreamflight Ahi slope sawer, foamy slope sawer, which I absolutely love. Great looking slope sawer. Um, someone did a whole 3D model of it and he's printed the entire plane. And it's it's printed in multiple sections and he has to glue it together somehow. And, you know, of course, it's going to be heavier. Um, it will end up being heavier than a foamy, but it might just work for a slope sawer, especially in a heavy wind. So he's done it as a test case to see how does it fly, but whoever designed the model and did a great thing, I think it's available on Thingy Universe. If you have a look at Glider or something like that, model Glider, you might find it. But will that be the future in 3D printing uh, models? I saw actually a Facebook post, Paul McCarthy, known aero modeler down here in Victoria, flies jets and all sorts of different things, helis and whatever. He's printing a jet, which looked phenomenal. He's done sort of the front. No doubt it takes a long time. So it'd be interesting to see, Paul, uh, if, you, if you listen to this, which I know you do listen to podcasts, get some updates on on how that project is going to see 
what the experience is of, of flying a 3D printed plane. I have seen one fly at a club, a small uh, electric aircraft. As I said, it is plas- it is uh, heavier than a normal a- aircraft, but it would be interesting to see with the different plastics that are available whether you could build something that's light and robust and still flies okay. So 3D printing could become a thing. I see 3D printing moving into to other areas like house production. And I, I saw um, actually a university in the US built this massive 3D printer and they 3D printed a boat, like a, a, uh, a powered boat. You know, you put your little outboard on the back kind of thing. That was a decent size. It wasn't like a, a three meter jobby. It was like a six meter fishing boat kind of thing. And they did it. I can't remember how long it took, um, but it looked unbelievable. You can look online, you'll find the video of, of the time lapse of it being built. But uh, 3D printers, are they worth it or not? Now, what's my opinion? My opinion is, look, you'll spend a lot of money to produce something that's a knick-knack, uh, that'll be sort of nice. Um, you know, if you look at the cost of printing, say, a plane, it's actually pretty expensive. It's probably cheaper to go and buy the Dreamflight Ahi than print one. But uh, no doubt over time, costs will will come down. But if you're into scale details and you want to, you know, really replicate a cockpit or... Uh, you know, little trinkets. I know that my friend Dominic's got 3D printed things like antennas and headsets that go inside the cockpit and seats and fire extinguishers and little things like that. By all means, go ahead and get a 3D printer. Otherwise, I dare say it's going to be one of those things that you think is great and you'll muck around with it for a little bit and then within a week, you'll have it sitting on the shelf and never to be touched again. Probably the software will go out of date and the firm will be out of date and you won't be able to do anything. But you know, if you if you want to have a bit of a play around, um, I was told that one of the good brands is Creelty. This is what Cosmo is using Creelty. You can get them from Banggood, I think, various different places. The 3D printer is quite good. Um, you know, take a look. But uh, by all means, if it floats your boat, go and get a 3D printer. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away. A place where we don't know. Well, that's it for the Flat Out RC podcast. A big thank you once again to Joe Finicchiaro. I have a really big guest coming on next week. Um, probably the biggest name in freestyle aerobatics in, from the US. Uh, jump online to the Flat Out RC Facebook. I'll give you a hint uh, prior to the uh, thing that'll be on Facebook. Uh, so Flat Out RC Facebook, don't forget to subscribe. Instagram, they're the two big platforms. The YouTube channel, I haven't been out doing a lot of YouTube videos at the moment. It's just so hard, I can't go anywhere. We're still in lockdown here in uh, Victoria. No flying events, it's depressing. But the upside is I have now got every single one of my models flyable. What I'm gonna do literally now after this, I press stop is I'm gonna start building a new indoor foamy model. So that will be coming soon keeping me occupied during this lockdown period so anyway thanks for joining me uh really appreciate you uh listening to this podcast otherwise it'd just be me talking to myself so stay tuned a big one episode coming up next week and thanks once again for joining me eyes on the freeway bonnie and Clyde. a classic cliche we're on the run this is what we waited